You're clean, aren't you? Except for your tower. You're a tower junkie, Roland. Hello and welcome to Tower Junkies, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. Tower Junkies is a podcast devoted to Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series. We discuss the themes, characters, and mythology of the series in Palaver episodes, and review the books and comic series in Kef episodes. We also discuss King novels related to The Dark Tower, non-Tower King novels, TV and film adaptations of King's work, and the latest news about potential Dark Tower-related adaptations. You can find more of our work at TowerJunkiesPod.com and follow us on every level of social media at TowerJunkiesPod. And I am your host and din for the podcast, Matt Hurt, and with me today is my comate Tiny. Hi, Tiny. Hello. Long days and pleasant nights. Hi. Oh, no, that's something from the books. Ah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, so today on the podcast, we will be discussing It, the book... And, uh, which is Stephen King's coming of age horror novel that created one of his most iconic and maybe one of the genre's most iconic monsters. I think so too. Pennywise the Dancing Clown. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so Tiny, how's it going? It's going well. Good. Very well. Good. Nice. You excited about the business cards? I am. Yes. Excited about the movie coming out this oh, weekend? Oh, yeah, the movie too. Yeah. Yes, which we had the the screening of. It, it's going to be fun. It is going to be fun. Oh yeah, that's going to be fun. To I'm yeah. going to be scared. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, and it's so that kind of leads me into. I have a couple news items that I want to bring up just because we're going to. Uh, I'm going to get this posted up pretty soon. But uh, yeah, the the movie it that's coming out uh, this Friday as of this recording is tracking really well. Like yeah, it's getting really good reviews um it actually i just read this article today uh saying that it is um it is the top horror pre-seller in history wow yeah like it has uh let's see so the so there isn't an actual um figure for it but i'll just read from the variety article um Let's see. Fandango didn't say exactly how many tickets it has sold. Uh, MovieTickets.com, meanwhile, said it currently accounts for 54.4% of all tickets sold by the company through Wednesday. Jeez. That is nuts. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And if the, if the film hits 60 million, uh, it will become the biggest September opening of all time. Wow. Which is amazing. Yeah. Um, I really hope it's good. Um, it's really nice that we have, you know, the one, the one Stephen King adaptation to come out in theaters this year Yeah, is going to do well. Yeah. Right guys. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, and then I have a couple other quick news items. There's one thing that I don't know if you saw the article. I mean, it's been floating around social media and everything about, um, <laughs> someone in, uh, Pennsylvania. I think the city is called Latitz. Uh, Letitz? Le- I'm I just going to say Letitz. Um, <laughs> they're leaving uh, red balloons tied to sewer grates. I, I only kind saw of, the, the headline. I didn't actually get to read any articles about it. but It's it's delightful. Yeah. It's so awesome. Um, what I love about that is they're just leaving these balloons uh, tied to, to sewer grates. Um, 
<laughs> what I love about it is that the uh, Latitz uh, Borough Police Department <laughs> has posted on their social media um, about it. Like they posted a picture. Um, they posted pictures of the balloons and then they said like their quote on Facebook was a certain move, uh, a certain movie is coming to theaters in two days and a local prankster took it upon themselves to promote the movie. We give points for creativity. However, we want the local prankster to know that we were completely terrified as we were, as we removed these balloons from the grates and we respect, respectfully request they do not do that again. If you're not sure what we're talking about, search it and watch the preview, but we suggest watching the preview with a friend or coworker with all the lights on and the sound down low. <laughs> um, that's funny. Yeah, it's 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 funny. It's a nice like little cheeky thing. And then like our local news posted it on their Facebook, and there was like, yeah, this isn't funny, guys. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know if they were serious because it, it's pretty funny. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, but huh? Yeah, what do you make in, of that? It's all in good fun. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's. I mean, it's it's encouraging that mm-hmm. someone is going to that that length, right? Just to to have fun and like promote the movie, sort of in mm-hmm. a way. Um, so it's encouraging that yeah. people are that enthusiastic about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. all in good fun. I mean, yeah. Let's. Uh, I'm trying to think of other examples of that happening, though. Like other. Yeah, like instant. I don't even think it, it's not even like viral marketing, like sanctioned by right. the studio or anything. It's just people that love the book. And, yeah. Um, presumably. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah. So it's exciting. Totally. Yeah, and then finally, we do have something that I. Uh, read today that local to some somewhat local to us um there's going to be a stephen king short film that's filmed in uh greenfield indiana uh which is where's greenfield in relation to indianapolis tiny do you know greenfield is uh east of indianapolis about 10 miles oh really yeah oh wow that's close yeah Okay. Um, anyway, they're going to be, uh, the folks at five after five productions, they're going to be filming a, uh, what's called a dollar baby, uh, which is Stephen King's, um, he sells the rights to, uh, a bunch of his stories for just a dollar a piece to certain filmmakers that meet some criteria, uh, so that they can film, they can film an adaptation of it. Um, so they're going to be doing a, a, uh, an adaptation of the short story, The Man Who Loved Flowers from uh, Night Shift, I believe. Hmm. Um, so they're actually starting to film this week, and um, there hasn't been any notice about it when, when it will be available or, or where it will be, but they're at uh, 5 After 5 Productions, which is uh, the number 5 After 5. <laughs> it's facebook.com slash 5 After 5 Productions, with those fives being... Um, the numbers. So that's pretty exciting. Cool. Kind of close by us. I actually sent them a message to be like, Oh, Hey, you want to, you know, be on the show? Maybe do you want to do that? So we'll see what happens. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that's exciting. Uh, so tiny, we are here to review it. We are. Yes. Which is exciting. I just recently finished it for the first time. Um, with respect to our, with, with my history with Stephen King, like I've, you know, it's funny cause when I was listening to it, I was listening to the audiobook, which by the way, Stephen Weber just, oh my God, he, he 
really set the bar high for future narrators of audiobooks for nice. me. Like it's it's unreal. Like when you have a character that stutters a lot in the in the books in the book, it's like that performance like kind of makes or breaks it mm-hmm. um, with it. And like I watched a little bit of the miniseries um, after I finished the book, and like I mean. Like I like Jonathan Brandis and and Richard Thomas, but like, like Stephen Weber just vocally doing the stutter is like incredible. Like it yeah. blows them out of the water. Nice. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So I finished it um a couple weeks ago. It was the first time reading it. Um. After that, I I kind of went through my list of Stephen King books that I've read, and I tried to piece together them by the order that I read them in. So Mm -hmm. starting with the first and then most recent and what I found interesting, and this is a slight tangent that probably, probably belongs in another episode. But, um, what I found that was interesting is that I think unless I'm, unless I'm forgetting something really the only, well, I don't know if it's the only two books that I read before the gunslinger were the shining and on writing. I felt like I've read, I'd read more, Hmm. but that's what I came up with on my list. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But I, there's gotta be one somewhere that I, I think maybe Carrie, I may have read before that. Yeah. There's probably something. Yeah. There's gotta be. Cause I was a, I was a Stephen King fan before the dark tower for sure. Yeah. But anyway, um, to get to my kind of roundabout way to get to my point is that I read it for the first time a few weeks ago. And this was the 26th Stephen King book I've read. Wow. Uh, all told. Yeah. And, um, and I'd been putting it off because I knew that this book was kind of a cornerstone of his bibliography and it was kind of a, a big, a big, a big book, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> and it was also, um, just a, just something that people raved about. And I kind of wanted to, to kind of savor that, like, save it until until um i'd gotten some more king books under my belt because i kind of under in the back of my head i kind of thought what if this is like his best (laughs) yeah there's nothing like i nothing can to kind of go up from there but but yeah what's what's your history with it the book um it's it's one of the king books that i avoided for a long time uh Mm -hmm. along with the dark tower series actually Mm -hmm. Um, I avoided it because because it's so long. Yeah, and uh, I remember my brother uh, tried to read it when he was in like junior high, um, and he was like telling me about it, and it sounded really complex. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, "Oh, it takes place over like thirty years, and uh, there's different timelines, and it's eleven hundred pages long." And I was like, "Oh my god, I don't even know if I can count to eleven hundred. <laughs> um, I was like in fourth grade at the time, mm-hmm. uh, and so. I, I just avoided it for a long time. I was intimidated. It was another book that I was intimidated by. Sure. Um, and so I, I finally read it for the first time, like about a year and a half ago. Um, actually I, I, I bought it. Uh, I bought it. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was around the time that they announced they were making the movie. Okay. And I was like, I, I've got to do it. I've, got, I've just got to sit down and hunker down and read this thing. Nice. Um, and I found it to not be a challenge. Like I thought, I thought it would be challenging. I mean, reading the Dark Tower is challenging because mm-hmm. there's just so much there, and it's so long. I think the stand is a bit challenging, mm-hmm. but it did not feel that way. It just it was so fluid, and so I, I think I I think I finished it in like two weeks. Nice, which is really fast for me, given that it's an 1100 page book. Right. So not only did I read it 
that it take me forever to read it, but I read it quickly. <laughs> it took me a long time to get to it, but I, I read it really quickly, and that's I think that kind of speaks volumes to how how much I enjoyed it. So nice, yeah, very nice. Um, so the way that we're kind of going to structure these book reviews on here is that this is this is called a this is what we're calling a Black Thirteen episode in that. It is a King novel that has some direct uh, connections with the Dark Tower. So the way that we're going to distribute this uh, review is that we're going to do a non-spoiler section, and then uh, and then we will do a spoiler section, and then after the spoiler spoiler section, we will do uh, a brief discussion about how the book ties into the Dark Tower and and how the how it fits into the dark tower mythos and everything. Um, so for those who, uh, haven't read the book, uh, you can listen to the non-spoiler review and I will read a plot description courtesy of the back of the paperback edition that I'm going to go grab right now. Cause I didn't bring it out. Okay. So the plot description courtesy of the back of the paperback is as follows to the children. The town was their whole world. To the adults knowing better, Derry, Maine was just their hometown, familiar, well-ordered, a good place to live. It was the children who saw and felt what made Derry so horribly different. In the storm drains, in the sewers, it lurked, taking on the shape of every nightmare, each, each person's deepest dread. Sometimes it reached up, seizing, tearing, killing. The adults knowing better knew nothing. Time passed and the, ch- and the children grew up, moved away. The horror of it was deep buried, wrapped in forgetfulness, until the grown-up children were called back, once more to confront it as it stirred and coiled in the sullen depths of their memories, reaching up again to make their past nightmares a terrible present reality. Frightening, epic, and brilliant, Stephen King's It is one of the greatest works of a true storytelling master. Okay, so that is the back of the paperback. Which is mammoth. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. Which, by the way, if you happen to be in Indianapolis, we are going to be hosting through the Obsessive Viewer podcast a one night event screening of short horror films from local filmmakers. It's called Shocktober in Irvington. Uh, tickets are on sale. You can go to shocktoberinirvington.com. That's on October 6th, 2017 at the Irving Theater. And uh, I bring that up now because we are actually going to be giving away a paperback edition of It. Um, as one of the prizes for the raffle. So uh, join us there. And uh, yeah, so Tiny, let's get into our non-spoiler review of it. Uh, what You said you read it a year or two ago? Mm-hmm. Yes. Year, year and a half ago. Year, year and a half ago. And um, what were your overall thoughts with with the novel when you when you finished it? Um, I, I absolutely adored it mm-hmm. on so many levels. It was just a terrific, terrific book. Um, the best way I can iterate that is I think I, I'm going to have to, I've read the stand twice mm-hmm. and I need to read this. I need to read it again and I need to decide which one I think is, is Stephen King's best single book. Um, because I think those two are at the top for me and I, I really, for me personally, I don't know which one is better right now. Cause I, I need to read both of them again and make, make a decision. Um, that's how much I liked it. I, I, I was just completely blown away by it. Um, it's, it's so incredible because the, the, the book is, uh, inextricably linked to the horror genre and it's, mm-hmm. it is without a, 
without question terrifying and it's it, it's so it's so infused in pop culture because of how scary it is and how scary pennywise is and mm-hmm. people don't like clowns um but for me that's that's just one part of the book you know there's i think i think myself and why myself and a lot of people really enjoy this book so much and why it's reached the upper echelons of stephen king's work is that um it's it's such an incredible commentary on being a being a kid yes um what it's like to have best friends as a child and um and then how how your childhood affects the adult that you become. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's that commentary is arguably the best part of the book for for me and a lot of other people. So mm-hmm. um, it's just it's amazing what Stephen King was able to achieve while still scaring the shit out of people. <laughs> right. Um, which that blows me away every time I read one of his books. It's like mm-hmm. you know. You, like the the incredible rich history of the Overlook Hotel and The Shining, mm-hmm. and um, you have the the interesting like politics and the dead zone, and mm-hmm. you have just all this this cool stuff that that plays in the background, and you think it's the background, but then sometimes you're like, is this the what the book is actually about? Is it actually <laughs> just about these kids being friends? Like it's you don't even know. That's how good Stephen King is at subplot and mm-hmm. and and character development. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's really remarkable. Um, so it's, I think, it's 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 become one of my favorite books in general, not mm-hmm. just Stephen King books. Um, I wish it weren't quite so long, so that I could just read it a handful sure. more times, um, <laughs> just willy nilly. Uh, it's it is just an incredible book. It's scary. It's touching. Uh, it'll tug at your heartstrings and then turn around and scare the crap out of you. It's it's a really unique book. Mm-hmm. It's great. And I'm going to echo a lot of those sentiments, mm-hmm. and I'm going to kind of add in... First of all, it's funny you mentioned the dead zone and how the politics are kind of in the background and everything, because I'm, I've got, uh, I'm about, uh, I'm about two-thirds of the way through the dead zone. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> and it's funny, because I've had, like, thoughts about, like, how the, how the plot is, 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 uh, par- uh, parsed out to us in that book, and mm-hmm. like, well, well, I'll, when I finish it, we'll have to do like a review if you want to do. A totally. I know I'll have to read it again because it's been mm-hmm. several years since I've read that. Right. Right. Cool. So anyway, um, yeah, but, but with it, like it, <laughs> the book made me really frustrated that I didn't read it when I was younger. Yeah. Um, cause I do feel like there is a little bit of a, not disconnect, but there is something, something about it that if I had read it, when I was, when I, when I read my first Stephen King book, when I was like 15 or 14, I think, um, it would have had a more profound effect on me, but reading it now as a 31 year old, 31, yeah, 31, Jesus. Um, (laughs) it, uh, it still had that, that powerful feeling to me. It just didn't, it didn't resonate with me in a, uh, in a present day kind of way. It just had, it, tapped into a nostalgia of being a kid and, and everything. But having said that, it is very close to being my favorite King novel that I've read. Um, like I've said before on the podcast, I do keep a list of, of King novels that I rank uh, and that that's always changing. So um, it's just kind of my mood for the day is just like, Oh, I think this book will be my favorite King novel, but um, it's very close to being number one. I do have some small issues we'll talk about in spoilers, but there is something to be really, there's something to be said about just how unsettling and terrifying that this book is. And it's, it's, 
it's a scary story. It's a scary book, but it's terrifying in a way that I don't think I've felt in a King novel since I read The Shining, the first King novel I've ever read. Yeah. Like, it is, it's something that really roots its way inside you. And, um, and it's, it's indicative of King's work on a grander scale because, like, arguably all the terror that I've read in King's work is effective in the same way. Uh, just because you empathize with the characters so that you're not just scared of what's terrorizing them. Like you're not freaking out because Pennywise is a scary clown. Uh, you're scared because whatever it is, is terrorizing the characters that you've grown an affection for. So it's, it's kind of a double edged sword that you're, you're both terrified because it's a creepy clown that's killing kids. Then it's also because you're terrified and and you're uh it's built up enough suspense that you're fearful for the kids that it's terrorizing um and I don't think I've had just as strong a horror vibe from King since the shining because I've read books like eleven twenty two sixty three under the dome mm-hmm. um uh, uh pet cemetery, which is more of an emotional journey for me at least um misery like it's it's this is a more out and out like straightforward like horror monster story right um that's similar to like like how i felt reading like the shining and in salem's lot and everything uh let's see the the book is separated into different two different timelines so the there's a 1958 storyline that runs concurrently with the 1985 storyline and i really liked the way that it was put together like those those two plot lines were so interwoven to each other that it it felt so organic. And like you said, tiny, it was a very fluid book that really, um, came together in a really, really magical way. Um, and you really like the 1958 storyline. It's just, it's a really beautiful look at kind of the bonds of childhood and friendship. And as, as children, um, and on the, on the other hand, the 1985 storyline is just really fascinating because, the reunion of the losers club and all of the um, events and discussion that happens between them, knowing that there's something in their past and their shared past that hasn't been revealed to us yet is just, is remarkable and, and like incredibly, incredibly readable and fascinating. Um, and yeah, so, so that's kind of my broad, my broad strokes on, on it. It's just, it's a really, beautifully written story about childhood friendships and, and uh, also how people can come together uh, to confront um, a traumatic source of evil, essentially, mm-hmm. um, or the source, a uh, collective source of trauma that they endure endured. Um, it's just, it's, it's such a great book. It's, it really is. Right. Let's see. Should we discuss in an, another non-spoiler way? Um, what all should we discuss? Yeah, or maybe just Dairy Maine as a oh yes as a town. Yeah. So uh, how, how do you feel about Dairy? Well, it's <laughs> it's it's one of those. Um, I hate to use keep coming back to the word unique, but mm-hmm. it's unique even to the Stephen King universe because mm-hmm. so many of his books are set in Maine, um, and and what's what's interesting about those other other locations in Maine is that they are, I think they're chosen or they're, 
they're used by Stephen King because they're so ordinary. Mm-hmm. They're ordinary towns, you know, like he can, he can sit there and tell you about Jerusalem's lot or, um, gosh, any of the other, uh, any of the other fictional towns that he's yeah. created in Maine. And it's, th- th- there's nothing, there's nothing spectacular about them other than how relatable those towns are to mm-hmm. other small towns around the United States. And, and, you know, that, that lifestyle, if you will. That's why he uses those throughout his other books. But Derry is unique because it's not an ordinary town. And it's, it's that's rare for him to do that. He doesn't – I don't think Stephen King uses extreme settings all that often. And mm-hmm. Derry is an extreme setting um, because the creature, it – and the town are are linked in a way. They're mm-hmm. they're kind of one and the same. They're symbiotic mm-hmm. in in a way. And so it's kind of like the creature almost created the town um, and holds the town hostage. It's yes. it's like an appendage of of the creature as opposed to just a place, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and that comes up in the book in in so many different ways. And so. I hate the cliche that, oh, it's like New York City was a character in the right. book or, you know, <laughs> but it, it literally is like a living, breathing thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, like literally it's not, it's not a metaphor. Like yeah. it's, it's literally <laughs> a, a thing that you have to address. It's a character. It is a character in the book. Um, it's, it's, it's beyond just a setting. And, um, the, the emotion that, kept it's it's this idyllic it's 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 portrayed very early on it's this idyllic bucolic town Mm -hmm. like a lot of main towns in the stephen king universe right but you slowly find out what what it really is and i had this this interesting urge that i wanted to save it yeah and i I think it's because he he delves into all this history Mm -hmm. and like the town has gone through so many like it was a logging town and uh there's all this industry around it and there's just it's it has a deep history it's 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 you can trace it back several hundred years and he goes into that and it's so fascinating that i love that there's so many stories that spawn from this place that are such cool stories that I want to save the town because I want to save those stories, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's like, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't give a shit about Jerusalem's lot. Really. I didn't really care if, <laughs> right. it, you know, if it just burned down or something like, mm-hmm. obviously I don't want that to happen, but I, I feel like, I feel like dairy was, it's just so unique in that sense that I wanted to, I wanted to save it. And I wanted to, I wanted to see people continue living there. And, and for the, the, the citizens of Derry to actually find happiness in their hometown. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause I, I don't want to give any spoilers or anything, but, right. um, that's a hard thing to do in Derry, right. <laughs> um, yeah. to say the least. So that's, that's just such a, that, that was just something I hadn't really experienced in other Stephen King books before or, or a lot of books really. Yeah. You know, I agree with you there. It's like, uh, let's see. It's like, um, <clears throat> To kind of, uh, it's like the Pennywise or the It creature is like okay. Look at look at Salem's Lot. Like to use your example, like the like you said, you don't really get a sense. I mean, you get a sense of Salem's Lot because they have the long interludes of 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 characters just kind of going about their day mm-hmm. and everything. You get a sense of it, but it's more that um, uh, Barlow 
just kind of came to Salem's Lot. Mm-hmm. Whereas like yeah. Pennywise is is a part of Derry and right. and Derry is just it's literally it's the it's in the root of dairy like it's it's in the sewer system and it's it's just very much entrenched in in dairy maine and it's it is a very unique thing because like it's so intrinsically tied that yeah you do get a different a different perspective on it uh on the fear and danger that's um in the book compared to the fear and danger that's in salem's lot um I need to read Salem's Lot again. <laughs> yeah. But um but yeah, it, it's it's really great and I love the depth that it goes to to kind of illustrate the history of dairy and and the feel of dairy. Um throughout the book there are interludes um between certain chapters that it's basically um one of the characters going through the history of dairy and kind of tra- backtracking all of the uh, terrible things that it is responsible for. And those interludes are really, really engrossing and really help to really flesh out the city of Derry and, and really give a certain type of, uh, um, pressure to the story and tension to it about how, like you said, tiny, you want to save Derry mm-hmm. and, uh, and, the more you learn about Pennywise, the more you think this might not be a, such an easy thing to do. Right. Um, yeah. And so at the center of it is the losers club. Um, yep. group of seven kids. There's Bill, <laughs> there's Bill Denbro who I'm a dick. like because this the book opens with georgie's big scene so in my head i i thought of him as as uh um as bill Deadbro. oh my god (laughs) (laughs) which is terrible Uh, but there's bill i'm i guess i'm gonna name all of them bill Denbro, uh, stanley uris richie tozier um beverly marsh uh ben haskam mike uh uh has Hanlon. Hanlon? Mike Hanlon. Is it Mike Hanlon? Yeah. Yep. And I always got that confused with Hapscomb. Yeah. And uh Eddie, 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 Eddie. Casbrack. Eddie Casbrack. <laughs> yep. Uh so that's the Losers Club. Tiny, how did you feel about the the Losers Club and how they were developed in the nineteen eighty fives or nineteen uh nineteen fifty eight storyline? Um you know, it's just another rehash of the Magnificent Seven. <laughs> um, no, it's not. It's it, it's it's much different than that. Um, what's great about the Losers Club is that they're a Losers Club. These are not these are not the heroes that you would typically get in a in a story like the Magnificent Seven. You mm-hmm. know, um, this isn't you know this isn't Luke Skywalker and Han Solo. This is. Uh, the, you know, this is lo- losers. I mean, they're yeah. they're not they're not people you would ordinarily notice in a mm-hmm. story. Um, they're Jar Jar, and yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, they're Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and and it's it's that's that's what's also really fascinating about the story is that these characters kind of have to discover their heroism, and mm-hmm. and uh, they're not they're not infused with the characteristics of typical main characters you know um eddie casprack is kind of sickly 
and you know bill is is super he he's so insecure he has a stutter mm-hmm. um and you know uh, most of these characters just have a big chip on their shoulder yeah um and i think what's fascinating about them is that they're is that and the fact that through their hardships uh i think that's how they find the strength and the ability to uh to take on the challenge of trying to defeat it you know i feel like um i feel i feel like you know bill losing his his brother and and beverly dealing with her abusive father mm-hmm. ben hanscom dealing with bullies and and having to move around with his mother um all the, all those things combined from each character is is something that it's it's a place of it's it's a point of focus for them that allows them to overcome the incredible fear of going down into the sewer to fight this entity that you don't even know what it is yeah. and that's been killing children for centuries mm-hmm. um it's it's a really remarkable piece of camaraderie uh, to see it all come together and and they're just really likable kids mm-hmm. i mean they're just really likable kids um big bill is just a, an awesome leader you know he just has that he has that ability to befriend someone to the point where they're literally willing to walk into literal hell with him i mean that's that's what these kids were doing is walking into hell and, and it's because mm-hmm. they loved and trusted bill denbro so much so he's incredible for that reason. Um, and then all of them just have these incredibly redeeming qualities, um, that are, that are so just so charming. Um, Richie Tozier is, is a favorite because, um, he's a spe- he's, he's one person that I wanted to focus on a lot because mm-hmm. he's, um, Stephen King, King kind of presents him as a class clown kind of guy. He's the jokester. He's our comedic relief throughout it, but it kind of gets, he kind of gets lost in that, that designation because he's so integral to, mm-hmm. to what happens because I mean, he's, he's incredibly close with Bill. I think he's just as smart as Bill. Mm-hmm. He's kind of like, kind of like the number two guy. Yeah. Um, and he, I mean, he, when they during some climactic points in the book he takes lead and he mm-hmm. actually he actually fights the battles of you know the reason why these people are together why these kids are together mm-hmm. he takes on some incredible things throughout the book um so th- i mean I, I don't know if we have time to delve into each character but that's right. that's what's so cool about all these characters is they all have so many different qualities mm-hmm. that that make them unique and and that make them make them fit in perfectly as a group. Mm-hmm. It's in, a great group. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I agree completely. And Richie is he's kind of the person that seems to kind of bring people together and mm-hmm. bring the group together. Cause it's just his personality. He's like, they, they are all misfits and outcasts and everything, but he's got this energy, this class clown persona that really lowers, um, lowers the defenses of, of the other kids when they, when they meet that really brings them, brings them together and makes, makes this really, really random assortment of children uh, become really great friends and, and bonded together in this, in this really uh, terrifying and, and uh, 
and uh, disturbing thing that they that they get together with. Right. Um, so he's kind of a, a good like icebreaker for the for the group um, as a whole. And I agree. Like he is like he is. If I were to make a list of favorite Stephen King characters of the ones I've read so far, mm-hmm. I mean he'd be pretty high up there. Oh, totally. Um, yeah, because he is just he's a really well put together character, and you kind of couple that with Bill's um, the kind of pain and stress that Bill feels about leading this this losers club into what could be their death um, in both timelines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, like that is something that's that really works together in a really and fits together in a really uh strong way that really comes through on the page. Mhm. And there there's some fun contradictory stuff or some kind of back and forth because like like Richie's the com- comedic relief, he's the jokester, but mm-hmm. all the kids are funny. No, oh, yeah. They all crack jokes throughout the throughout the book and mm-hmm. um you know Ben Hanscom is the he's the smart guy, he's the brains. Mm-hmm. But they're all smart kids. I mean, right. they all they all know things, and, mm-hmm. and and then you have something like like Bill. He's he has a stutter, which stutters are it's a psychological problem. You kind of mm-hmm. it's rooted in some kind of a feeling of inadequacy or uh, not having uh, faith in yourself or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's the leader of the group. It's kind yeah. of weird that someone who feels inadequate enough that they have a stutter is also the leader of a group. It's, it's really, that shouldn't work, but it does. Right. That should not be a characteristic of your leader, but it is. And it, mm-hmm. it just kind of works. It's, it's, I mean, we talk about character development all the time with Stephen King, but mm-hmm. it goes to show you how important it is and how, how much it can drive a story to have your characters so deep and so well-rounded. And I think the losers club is, towards the top of examples of, mm-hmm. of Stephen King characters who are well-crafted. Yeah. And what makes the book so impressive to me and the whole, the narrative structure and the, the entire narrative so impressive to me is that King can make, he can make the focus of the book be seven central characters, seven central characters, a very deeply uh, developed town that they're in, Plus this demented clown that demonizes them and, and murders murders a bunch of kids, and then also have room for some like some villain characters that are bullies to them. But having the main story center around seven different characters at two separate times of their lives, of their lives when they are wildly different people, yet still somewhat similar, um, and being able to juggle all of that in this massive tome. Um, in this huge story that he's telling is just really remarkable in terms of just from pure storytelling perspective. Um, and it's just so impressive. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. Um, let's see. And do you want to talk a little bit about Henry Bowers and, um, oh, also, yeah, I'll, I'll give my rent like small thoughts on, on the losers club. Yeah. Um, I basically agree with everything you said. I, I just love the bond that they have Yeah, and how they are, they're, they're bound together by this, by this terrible thing that they're opposing essentially. Um, but they have just such a nice quality to, uh, their chemistry with each other and their, the way that they, 
interact with each other. Like I, there are moments when like in the book, they, they seriously, obviously they go through terrible ordeals and there's a lot of moments where they're like, they, King talks about how they, they love each other. Like they are, they are bound together and they, they love each other as, as like they're like kin. And you really get a sense of that through everything Mm -hmm. and how they go through so much, so much uncertainty and so much terror that it's just, you really get a sense of the bond that they feel. And that was probably the strongest thing about the book to me. Totally. Yeah. And then, so Henry Bowers and his, his own little quartet. Yeah. um, (laughs) How did you feel about the villains or the bullies in the, in the book? Um, Uh, they, you know, they're, they're almost, I think Henry Bowers is almost over the top sadistic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't, I never, I never knew anyone really like in my own life who was like that much of a bully. Yeah. I'm not saying I didn't, didn't see anyone ever get bullied, but I'm saying like he, he has his friends hold, hold down Ben Hanscom so that he can carve his name into his stomach with yeah. a knife. Like that's really dark and sadistic that's i think that's a different level of bullying mm-hmm. um I, I think a lot of bullying is entertainment based and it's like oh it's funny to give a kid a swirly or shove him in a locker sure. you know? that's not that's not funny that's just sadistic right um and so he's he he's a special kind of bully in mm-hmm. that way uh, and you know he's i i think i think henry bowers goes beyond bully and he's he's really just He's really just an, e- an evil kid, really. I mean, and it that comes to a culmination in in, in the later later parts when they're mm-hmm. when they're adults. Um, he's he's just an evil kid, and you know he's. I, I think it's very important that Stephen King kind of laid out that you know he, he was he wasn't born that way. You know, mm-hmm. typically psychopaths and killers and evil people are created. They're not born that way. At least that's, you know, kind of a typical saying. Um, and you know, we, we see that in, in his home life. He's, he's, he's crazy and he's sadistic because his father was crazy and Mm -hmm. sadistic and, and treated him that way. And so that's, that's the only lens that he has to, to experience the world through. Um, and he influences his friends in that way and they Mm -hmm. turn into this crazy gang and, um, I think it's kind of, I feel like Henry Bowers and his gang were kind of like small tests along the way for the Losers Club. Yeah. Um, cause there is this kind of mysticism and, uh, uh, like supernatural destiny involved with the Losers Club coming mm-hmm. together. I think that's hinted at throughout, uh, the book and the, the miniseries as well. Um, like the, these seven kids were meant to find each other. Right. So there, there's kind of a supernatural play, uh, play at work there you know there's yeah there that that mysticism is kind of at play and i think right i think maybe henry bowers is also part of that as well and that mm-hmm. you know the in terms of you have to face this incredible evil at some point they're kind of provided with these tests along the way through henry bowers yeah and and i think it just from from, from a from a, fa- a fan point and from a story point i think it makes a lot of sense and and also from a a a magic or a destiny standpoint if you will if you're looking at that i think that kind of Mm -hmm. that kind of makes sense and it's it's a good thing to have that that kind of adversity uh that faces the losers club through the 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 bowers gang yeah because if it's 
because if it's just if it's just the losers versus Pennywise, it's it loses it loses some uh, some appeal to it. It just becomes a straight monster versus kids right. story. Right. Having kids against them also is, as you said, kind of a <laughs> a sub boss, like a secondary, like uh, like training um, right. <laughs> for Pennywise. Like that could be a, a story in and of itself. Is just the Losers mm-hmm. Club against against Henry Bowers and his gang. I mean, oh, that would be a cool book just in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, I feel like we'll uh, to talk more in depth about that. We'll have to beat around the bush a little bit. So we should kind of just go into spoilers, I guess. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So before we do that, do you uh, overall thoughts? Like where does this rank with you and in, in, with Stephen King books? I it's, it's top three. Definitely. It could be my favorite of his. I really can't. And that's something that changes from time to time. Um, misery was my favorite for a long time. Oh, yeah. The dead zone was my favorite for a long time. The shining for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like I'm 58 years old right. saying this, um, but you know it's it fluctuates and it's up and down, which is one of the great things about Stephen King's body of work. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the moment, it's it's so high. I mean, The Dark Tower is still my favorite thing. It is still my right. favorite work of Stephen King. But if you have to point to a single book, I think I think right now it's kind of a toss up between The Stand and It. Nice. Uh, and then th- a very close second for uh, probably drawing of the three mm-hmm. or um, maybe dark tower seven mm-hmm. the dark tower i'm not sure uh, that's man i'm not good at making lists it's it's really tough <laughs> so, um, but it's yeah. it is phenomenal everyone should read it it's mm-hmm. it's if if you were a kid you should you'll like this book right so everyone will <laughs> like this book if you've ever had a childhood yes <laughs> you will love this book right um yeah and i and i agree it is it is a a very beautifully written example of how brilliant Stephen King can be as a storyteller and how he can put together all of these pieces to fit so well into a narrative space that is just remarkable in terms of character development and in character journeys for everyone involved in it. And it's just, it hits, hits a spot that's really, uh, really a testament to life as a child, essentially. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, so we'll go into spoilers for It by Stephen King. So if you haven't uh, read It and do not want to be spoiled uh, by the story of It or anything, uh, go ahead and divorce yourself from this uh, recording. Or, or that's a weird way to phrase it. It is. Um, yeah. Um, go ahead and turn off this uh, episode and come back when you um, have read it. His screams were shrill and piercing, and all up and down Witcham Street people came to their windows or bolted out onto their porches. They float, it growled. They float, Georgie. And when you're down here with me, you'll float too. So we are spoilers on for it. Um, the first thing, Tiny, that I want to ask you about the book is kind of what I feel like this might be a little, a little, uh, hard to say because my immediate thing that I want to say is what did you think of the ending? Because (laughs) Stephen King is so, um, hit or miss with endings. Right. Um, and I would say that it's, 
we've always said that it's it's more about the journey than the destination, and it's more about um, you don't need to have a satisfying ending uh, to really enjoy the the entire experience because it's just a fraction of the entire experience. Yeah. So my th- my getting my getting your opinion on, on a book by Stephen King, like when we talk about it, my immediate thought is what did you think of the ending? So having said that, and then we'll backtrack and talk in more detail. Mm-hmm. What did you think of the ending to it? <laughs> I think it's one of Stephen King's better ones. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I was beyond satisfied with mm-hmm. it. I think as far as the actual climax, mm-hmm. defeating the creature, the entity, uh, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. insert synonym here. Um, I think, I think that was wholly satisfying mm-hmm. because it's that the, the creature is it it's almost like beyond space and time it, mm-hmm. it, it it's flat out says that it is an eternal thing it's an eternal mm-hmm. being it, it's not just going to die of old age or something yeah and it's it's so menacing and it's such an insurmountable task to defeat this creature mm-hmm. that i think it has to be i think it was a great choice to have the the ultimate downfall of the creature be a uh, or kind of, kind of be kind of like a psychological thing or be sort mm-hmm. of outside the realm of space and time if you will yeah. um it's it was a it had to be a spiritual magical scenario for it to be defeated and i think the way that stephen king crafted that that process the uh chud if you will Mm -hmm. the way he crafted that was really well done i wasn't confused i wasn't like so what's happening now he actually physically walked into the creature what's going on right no it's like it was it was a battle of the minds at Mm -hmm. the end and like i just i understood it even though it was kind of a uh, super physical thing like beyond the physical world if you right i think that was a great choice i think it worked really well um and and I it it just it was it was the the proper way for that battle to happen, and I I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was well done. And then uh, from there, kind of the the denouement, you know, coming around, coming out of the sewers and finding the wreckage of Derry, yeah, was was pretty heartbreaking. But at the same time, it's like it's like trying to that like there's no way to move on from Derry. You can't mm-hmm. just be like. Well, I, you know, we won and it's defeated, and I'm just going to move on with my life. No, like it has to be. It's such a terrible thing; it has to be forgotten. Right. And you know, literally, as soon as the the air clears and and you know they start moving on physically, they start moving on emotionally and mentally. They start forgetting about what happened, mm-hmm. and you know, in a way, that's very tragic. But like I said, it's you cannot live with the memories of Derry, yeah. and that's, which is embodied by what happens to Stanley Uris. Mm-hmm. Um, you you can't you can't cope with such intense evil, and so I think that was a great a great choice as well. Um, and then he ends it on a high note with with Big Bill running, yeah, uh, riding on Silver with Audra. I think mm-hmm. that was we needed that. Yeah, as an audience, you need something like that to give you a bit of a. I'm glad it was a happy ending. Right. He tends to go a little dark sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really that was fun. That was a nice way to end it, and it and it's it ends on a note of uh, childhood majesty, if you will, yes. which is. Again, that's that's my favorite theme of the book is the childhood, mm-hmm. the majesty of being a kid, and the 
magic of being a kid, if you will. Um, yeah. And he ended on that note, which was, again, just the perfect way to end it. it so. Oh, yeah. It was the yeah. perfect, like, exclamation point on, yes. on on the book. Like, that was that was the perfect way to end it. I definitely agree with you there. Nice. What did you think of the ending? Um, I I really liked it. Um, yeah, good. The whole interdimensional mind thing, that got a little bit cloudy to me. A little, a little meta. Bit conf- yeah, and a little confusing. Yeah. Just, it was hard to track a little bit, especially with the dueling uh, time time periods. Yeah. Um, but just the the descriptive power of his of his prose mm-hmm. is like like I'm already a bit of an arachnophobe, but like yeah. just hearing the the the, the um, descriptions of of the of the, its final form is oh it just it just sent shivers up my spine and it yeah. was just it was remarkable um in the setting too yeah down in the suit like a cave type thing like it's it's literally an evil cave lair oh yeah i don't like caves they freak me out so right you're kind of a uh, claustrophobic there I'm a little claustrophobic yeah, yeah. So. nice so yeah all those things combined mm-hmm. yeah the whole idea of of big bill doing like like it ending on that as as we said before it's it's a great way to end end the book um by kind of linking linking the present day or 1985 day um bill to the childhood bill in in such a way it kind of has a healing power to it that this is even though the memory of dairy and the memory of of each other is fading and, and going away. It's just, there's that connection to the childhood. Um, it's kind of like they almost like they kind of reclaimed, um, their childhood and they're not going to live with this in the dark recesses of their mind. Right. Um, it has a healing factor to it, which I'll talk more. We'll, we'll talk more about, uh, some of that here in a bit, but actually, you know what? Let's go ahead and transition to that. <laughs> okay. So one of the things that I loved about this book I loved so much about it is the idea that um, the farther they got away from Derry, the the less that they remembered of it. They don't remember each other, and Mike Mike kind of sacrificed his I wouldn't say sanity because he's not insane, but he likely sacrificed his emotional well being and mental well being by staying in Derry to kind of monitor things and and so that he can call them back for their for their promise keep the lighthouse yeah yeah exactly that, do, they, do they use that in the book or is that just a series the miniseries um i i feel like it was in the book too i think so too which yeah. is it's such a great way to put it oh absolutely he kept the lighthouse oh yeah. yeah so um so so i really like that and i like the idea that they not only are they when they're reunited, it's not like they're like, oh hey, remember, remember in the sewers when we you know destroyed this big spider thing? <laughs> yeah, um, like oh old times. But it's like they they collectively don't remember all of it, and like they slowly start remembering things, and it's has this really profound effect. At least this is how I read it. That it's like a group of people that survived a trauma and have, um. Uh, basically blocked that memory out of their lives. Like this isn't, it's a supernatural thing in the book, but it has the, it has the feel of like people that are confronting their darkest and, and most grisly memories and, and the thing that's things that are holding them back from living uh, healthy lives um, and kind of confronting that together. And it's just a really powerful metaphor and a powerful um, 
thing to bring about in the 1985 storyline. And I just, I, I really love that. Did you pick up on, did you get that feel? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and kind of revisiting the book a year and a half after I read it and just kind of like looking over some notes and other podcasts and mm-hmm. the miniseries, watching the miniseries and stuff just mm-hmm. to kind of refresh my memory. I, I think it's interesting that it's sort of implied that, that it, the creature uh, sort of, imbued the losers club with success outside mm-hmm. of dairy as right. as almost and it's it's so fitting because it plays into this theme of like um evil seduction kind of mm-hmm. like you're being seduced by the evil evil money like they're all financially successful yeah um they're not they're not su- successful in their love lives or anything right but it's like well I, with the exception of bill he's married but mm-hmm. um a lot of them, you know, they don't have children. They don't have like happy families right. necessarily. Not um, only that, they can't conceive children. Right. Which I thought was interesting because I don't think in the book they really explain or posit why that is. Right. Um, cause you would think that if, cause like, like you said, it imbued them with, with success. And mm-hmm. I think that my read on that is that it was just, you know, if they make the, if, he, if it makes the, People that almost killed it successful—they're—they're they're not going to want to come back to dairy, right? <laughs> for a little reunion. That's that's my take on it. That might be a little straightforward, but that's exactly um, what I was going to say. Oh yeah, because yeah, like you know, the fate, the destiny that brought them together wants them to be together, and when they're not together, mm-hmm. they're not happy. They're not complete. They have a feeling of emptiness. All of them, I think, were a bit lost, even mm-hmm. though they're successful. Yeah, and so it's it's funny you see like. It's funny that the, the destiny, the good thing that's supposed to keep them together and help them defeat this evil is actually making them unhappy, I think. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I – an interpretation that I think you can glean from reading that is that mm-hmm. destiny made them a little bit unhappy outside of dairy because that's where they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. But it made them happy through them being financially successful and mm-hmm. – you know, they've all have good careers and stuff like that. So that's, that's just very, it's very clever the way that kind of works. Yeah. And I, that's also something I really appreciated about the, the eighties timeline. Yeah. And I love well. that the, the, the destiny that they feel the power of the turtle, yeah. um, putting them together, like the second that they get the phone call, they know everyone's like, okay, just drop where we are, go, right. go there, slice our wrist a little bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But it's funny that description that you just gave just gave me such such vibes of Lost. Yeah. Um so much. Totally. Anyway, that'll be the fourth podcast we start. Anyway. <laughs> um <laughs> Just kidding. Anyway, um So yeah, so the let, let's talk about Stan Yaris. Mm-hmm. Um did you feel like this is kind of how I how I felt when reading the book or listening to the audiobook if you're if you're a purist. Um but how I felt about it was that it kind of felt like I, I really like the idea of having one of the losers kill themselves in, in 1985 immediately upon uh, the phone call. Like that, that set the stage and set the tone so much because you literally just learned that this person exists and then he is, he's dead in a bathtub with a, with a, uh, the turtle couldn't save us written, I think in his blood on, on his the blood, wall. Yeah. And it's like that imagery is just shocking and horrifying. And it raises so many questions, mm-hmm. um, throughout it. But 
I kind of feel like ha- not having Stan in 1985 made his 1958 counterpart kind of, kind of not recede into the background, but kind of not have as, as strong a, uh, characterization or as strong as a, as, he wasn't as strong a focal point in the 1958 timeline because he wasn't around in 1985. So it was like whenever he was in 1958, it was just, I, I didn't really feel as connected with him as I was with the other six. Did you pick up on that? How did you read that? Absolutely. I had the exact same notion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think a big part of that uh, contributing factor to that idea that he's kind of, you didn't connect with them as well is the fact that he's a fish out of water because he is the, he is the logical scientific ground kind of almost like your, um, almost like your control group in an experiment. Oh yeah. That's a really good way to describe it. Right. Cause he doesn't, he doesn't pick up, he doesn't, he, he's the last one to believe in Mm -hmm. it. You know, he, he's the, he's the very scientific fact logic based character. And so, um, it takes him forever to really believe in this thing. And he has, uh, he's, he's so, he's different from all the other characters in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think, and what's also funny is it's kind of hinted at that he's, he has a little bit of psychic ability, like a little bit of, it's, it's hinted at a little bit, but yeah. it's, ne- it's never f- full on come out and say, you know, he is a full on psychic like Jake Chambers. Right. It's not to that level. Um, but I, th- I think part of the reason why he is especially terrified of it is because, and, and, and so terrified that he would rather die than face it again, mm-hmm. is that he could literally touch its mind and see just how awful it is. He could experience yeah. the evil of it as opposed mm-hmm. to just, you know, experience the evil of what it's like to be it as opposed to just experiencing it. And so I think that's all these, all those things kind of play into why Stanley Uris is the one who killed himself. And also I think he's, mm-hmm. he's the character that as a child faced the least amount of adversity. He really did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the chip on his shoulders that he was Jewish. Right. Yeah. Which is, it's not, he's, he's picked on by mm-hmm. Stan, uh, by, uh, Henry Bowers yeah. because of it, but that's it really. But it's more like he's, he's kind of, picked he's kind of picked on picked on because he's jewish but it's also like the kids picking on him for it don't really understand why right. they're picking on exactly. him for it just that he's different right um but he didn't lose his brother his, right his dad doesn't beat actually there's a really nice scene where he has a conversation with his dad his parents like at breakfast in the morning mm-hmm. i don't know if you remember that part i don't remember from the book his dad's a dentist and he's like uh in the book there, there, he yeah. has this really his parents are not uh, there's this running theme or this aspect or fact about the town of Derry that the parents are oblivious to what's going on. Yeah. And the parents are kind of under the spell, if you will, of it, mm-hmm. that they just don't want to know what's going on. They in have the town. blinders on. Yeah. They have blinders on yeah. uh, rose colored glasses. Uh, and a lot of the adults suck in, in the book. <laughs> yeah. They're just terrible people, but Stanley's parents are not that. Mm-hmm. So opposed to a lot of the other characters, you know, Eddie's overbearing mom, mm-hmm. Bill's parents who are just checked out because yeah. their son died, Bev's dad beating the shit out of her, mm-hmm. all that stuff, he doesn't have that. And so I feel like he's he's the least prepared for adversity because he's experienced the least amount of adversity. That's a really good point. Yeah. So I think I think it makes so much sense that he's the character who killed himself. Mm-hmm. Um and I think huh. I think 
that event, him killing himself in 1985, is really grounds the group, and really, Mm -hmm. I I think it. Not that they needed it, right? Um, I think it's 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 not that they needed it, and it's not that it's an excessive thing. Like it, like he didn't have to kill himself to bring the group together, but I I think it kind of falls into both categories. And I think it was, I think it was a good idea. And it's, and it's such a, such a jolt into 1985 to have Mm -hmm. one of them kill themselves. It's really, it really just, it just, it just wraps a lasso around the audience and ropes them into 1985 by having him kill himself. So I think it was a, a good choice as far as the story goes, but it's tragic. (laughs) The man killed himself. Yeah. And the way you describe it. Yeah, that definitely, I mean, that's, I agree with you there and it's, um, like you said, it's not like the suicide brought them together, but it's just that the fact that their collective memory is so fragmented that the fact that Stan killed himself is enough to really hammer down the importance of what they're doing and, and the gravity of what they're what they're facing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love how Pennywise kind of taunts them yeah. um, with Stan's death. There's a scene in the books after they meet um, where I think think that they find his head or i think it's mike had uh mike sees his head just in the fridge uh in the fridge yeah 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 it's it's really really great Mm um and you know it's funny i was gonna i was gonna you touched on the the parents and everything and i i agree i really like the idea that all of these characters kind of have not terrible parents but parents that have their own stuff going on right. um, with somewhat of the exception of Richie. I don't really remember. Yeah. His, he had, I don't think his parents are mentioned very often. I don't very think, much. I think he's a pretty happy kid. Yeah. But like you said, like Bill, like the description of Bill's parents just being just cold to him and yeah. in distant after Georgie's death, like that was just heartbreaking, heartbreaking, just absolutely heartbreaking. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that, and then like, I, was terrified for Bev because her dad was a monster. Yeah. And I like the dichotomy of how 1985 her kind of it's, it's an, it would be easy to just say like, Oh, she's, she was the victim of abuse as a kid and she had an abusive father. So of course she's going to marry an abusive guy. Right. Like the way that it's depicted in the book and described and everything is that she like, it's, it's a very natural um, uh, description for why she was with her her abusive husband Tom, I think. Tom, yeah, yeah. Um, her abusive abusive husband, and it it just tracks narratively and gives so much more depth to her character. Um, I actually don't well. re- I actually don't remember that part. Oh, really? Of the book, yeah, yeah. It was something like she uh, felt that she uh, she hated she hated her father, but it was all that she knew, and that she. Like she couldn't, she couldn't admit that she hated him because a part of her did love her, love him. Right. But like okay. that was, it, it's really well drawn in the book. Um, I'm not doing it justice, but it's, it's there okay. and it's, it's really spectacular. Gotcha. Um, so we've gone this entire time <laughs> really without talking too much about Pennywise. Yeah. And it itself. Um, so yeah, what did you think of Pennywise the Dancing Clown? Well, it's when people talk about the book and the story and everything, um, I feel like that's kind of the end because I feel mm-hmm. like Pennywise is 
Pennywise is part of like pop culture now. Yeah. I mean, it's like that's, which is not typical for Stephen King. I mean, right. His stuff, it doesn't become pop culture ish. It's, it, you know, there's always been Stephen King's always associated with like kind of weird, like the weird kid. Yeah. You know, and I was like, if, if there was a kid in high school who read a lot of Stephen King, he was kind of a weird right. outsider kid, if you will. I don't know. But Pennywise is, is part of pop culture and that he's the essential uh the quintessential mm. scary clown mm-hmm. you know but it's funny because that's just one really just one sliver of what it is it's, yeah absolutely. it's and it's so fascinating that like the clown the clown is is kind of like the default it's almost like the default setting for whenever it encounters someone for the first time or it's just generally being present at one of the events like the, mm-hmm. the ironworks explosion or, um, uh, gosh, when they shoot up the gang in like the thirties or something like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. the ironworks explosion is like right around the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. And then it's like the 1930s is the, some gang is coming to town to rob a bank. Yeah. The, the, oh, I can't and the remember. whole, the whole town shows up and they have a big firefight. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so there was the fire at the black spot fire. Yeah. The fire. And then there was, a uh, I can't remember the timeline for it. Um, yeah, yeah. But anyway, but anyway, well, yeah. yeah, but in all, in all those major events and whenever it is kind of first presenting itself to a person doesn't really know them yet. Mm-hmm. It's like the clown is the default setting. Mm-hmm. That's at least that's kind of how I interpret it. Right. And it's just, it's kind of interesting because you would think it would just appear as a person. Yeah. But I don't know why. As far as I know, it's never explained why a clown specifically. Yeah, I don't think it, it is. Think it, which is great. Oh, yeah. Don't explain. I don't want to know. Oh, yeah. It's mysterious. And yeah. It, it's, it makes any, the character. Yeah, if anything, it's to lure kids. But right. Like you said, like in the 30s when, when the gang is, is getting gunned down, that's... I mean that he's just as a clown. Right. Um, and it's random. People know he's there, but they don't. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, was there a clown at that shootout in the it, town earlier today? I don't know. I thought I saw one, but yeah, it, it's exactly. weird. Like, yeah, oh yeah. Um, and and what's fascinating? What's fascinating about, I think, the creature mm-hmm. at the end is that it, in the end, it's it's a spider, or it's yeah. Actually, it's kind of it's a little bit ambiguous because it said it's it's like a spider. Yeah. So it's not necessarily like an eight legged with the fangs and right. spins a web like it's. It's just similar to a spider. The way that it's described is that their minds couldn't comprehend its true form. And right. the closest that they could come is this spider looking monster. Right. Which I, I think that's just, that's, that's beautiful. And that's, that's so Stephen King. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really, it's quintessential King. It uh, really is. It. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I, th- I think it's it's such a unique uh, villain and with, with regard to the fact that it's, it's a shapeshifter. And that it's eternal. Mm-hmm. Um, it 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 came from unknown origins mm-hmm. and an unknown time. No one really knows how long it's been there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's wrapped up in so much mystery, but as soon as it's there, you know what it is. Like mm-hmm. that's it, that's it. But we don't. It's so it's such a di- it's such a diverse villain that you can't even give it a name. You have to yeah. call it. It's. It's it's title is an article. It right. It's so uh, that's. I mean, I think that's an incredible 
an incredible detail about mm-hmm. about the villain. You know, that's that's you don't see that in a lot of other stories, you know. Yeah. It's that's that's one of the things that makes it so special and why mm-hmm. you know, I think I think it's it's in popular culture because of the clown part, mm-hmm. but I, I wish it was in popular culture for other reasons because right. it's more than just a, a scary clown. Yeah, um, it's fascinating because it is it's a shapeshifter. It's yeah. not like there's like one of the, I mean one of the creepiest or a couple of the creepiest parts of the book is the uh, the house on Nybolt Street. Mm-hmm. With the were the teenage werewolf, yes, and uh, also when 1985, um, uh, Bev Bev goes to uh, her father's house, and it's there in the form of this elderly woman who kind of tries to trap her and, and mm-hmm. kill her in there. It's like it's his his the other forms of it are are really uh, really spectacular in the book. Yeah, and I kind of wish it. Gave, got it to do. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's interesting that it, um, the creature has to, it, 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 it kind of reads your mind in a sense that it, it shifts into what you fear the most. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's a really cool aspect of it. It also steals paper boats. So it's kind of a monster in that sense. Yeah. True. True. <laughs> um, what I was heading towards is that it, why does it do what it does? Why does mm-hmm. it show up every 27 years to kill children? Mm-hmm. And it's basically, it kind of feeds on, it feeds on fear essentially. And like one of the scariest things about the creature is that it partially eats children yes, and bites them and like they dismember, d- mangles their bodies. And that's, that's super scary. Mm-hmm. But it only does it because that's part of what children fear. Yes. Oh, that's, yes. That's crazy. Like it doesn't. It doesn't need oh, yeah. physical sustenance. It doesn't mm-hmm. need to feed on flesh like a werewolf would, or right. a vampire drinks your blood. Mm-hmm. That's not what it does. It does that because we associate that with something incredibly terrifying, mm-hmm. and the kids do. You know, the children always associate. That's that's what a monster does is it eats you, you know? exactly, but it doesn't actually need to feed physically what it actually thrives on where it gets, it kind of absorbs energy and mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like monsters Inc. Yeah. Where it, like <laughs> it just, it wants the screams and it actually wants your fear and that's what keeps it sustained. I want to see that crossover. I know. That'd be nuts. <laughs> um, yeah, just Pennywise oh, standing awesome. in front of a door, like yeah. waiting for it to open, sucking himself up. Um, Oh, that's awesome. So yeah, it's, it's, it, it's, what I love about it is that it's a gray area. Mm-hmm. I still don't fully understand right. why it does. Like, what is its reason for existence, and why? Do, why does it? Why does it so thoroughly terrify? Mm-hmm. And it's because it feeds on that fear. And you know, fear is a form of energy. If you think about yeah. what what your body does when you're afraid, you sweat, your heart pumps, mm-hmm. and you're you give off, I'm sure, some kind of pheromones, yeah. and you. I mean, you start shaking and you scream and it's just mm-hmm. like, you're literally pouring energy out of your body. And so yeah. if you think, you know, it almost makes a little bit of sense that in an, from an evolutionary standpoint, there'd be some kind of creature somewhere that feeds, that off, feeds of off that energy. Oh yeah. And so that's, that's just a whole spectrum of, mm-hmm. it's just incredible. The, it's, it's incredible the spectrum that this villain covers. It's just so... It's 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 the quintessential villain. It's a quintessential mm-hmm. monster. 
Absolutely. And that's that's what's that's what makes it slash Pennywise stand out. I yeah, absolutely. That's really well said. Thank you. And uh, the whole idea of one of the best parts of it for me was that, or one of the best revealing parts of it, because we don't get much reveal. But one of my favorite parts of the reveal of it is that it is feed, it's it feeds on the children or eats partially eats the children because that's what they fear. I, I love right. that as a concept. It makes you wonder what it would do if it fed if it fed off adults. Yeah, or detect oh, adults. Yeah. You know, like what what would happen? Would they? I don't know. <laughs> I yeah. gotta, Instead of partially being eaten, they just have a, they have a ton more debt. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, they'd be really alone. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> they have to work on weekends. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> ridiculous. Jesus, that's so dumb. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so speaking of Pennywise, the the smoke hole um section where the kids uh, have their little clubhouse that are that's kind of underground, and then they basically. Uh, try to do like a um, they call it a smoke hole where they set a fire in it and it's in an enclosed space so that they can have a vision to guide them in, into finding Pennywise and or figuring out what it is and everything. And there's this vision that they have where they basically it shows it, it reminded me a little bit of and I know that obviously it, this came out long after it, but it reminded me of the end of Cloverfield. Um, where if you freeze frame it, you can see like a, a satellite or something crashing into the water. Mm-hmm. But the vision is that, that they have is that they're, they're way back in like millions of years ago when it's all, uh, all, uh, not primordial, but well, primordial, I guess, but like all like way back millions of years ago and they see something crash into where dairy stands. Right. It's just a huge crater. And then that's like the, that's the origin of Pennywise and of it. And I love that we get that vision, but we don't get any explanation of what it is or anything. And we don't need any explanation because what we get is that it's an eternal trans-dimensional being and and it's – Right. That's what it is. That's a good analogy. Um, Yeah. I didn't think of that, the whole uh, Cloverfield crash. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's – that was just what was in my mind when I I got to that part of the book. Yeah. That's good. But yeah. But I I like that – I like that we get that background of it and – what little we have of it, that's just enough for it to, to, it's like right in that sweet spot where it's enough background to, to give us a fear of what, uh, of what's to come. Totally. Yeah. And then I have a couple other points I want to hit. Okay. But first, let's just talk a little bit about the turtle. We're, t- we'll talk more about that in the last section of the podcast. But, mm-hmm. um, I, what did you think of the inclusion of the turtle as the, kind of the, opposite of it and kind of a guiding force of, it. and we'll talk more about the connections to the dark tower later, but as without the dark tower, how did you feel about the turtles inclusion? Um, I, I kind of wish that the mysticism or the driving force that brought the, that brought the, uh, the losers club together, that kind of the source of good, mm-hmm. if you will, in this battle of good and evil, I kind of wish it would have remained a little more shrouded in mystery. Interesting. The way that it is, because mm-hmm. like you, like you just described, you know, we don't know what it is or mm-hmm. it's, it's still a very mysterious creature and villain. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the, the genesis of good is just the turtle. And it's like, it's mm-hmm. just kind of, it's just kind of 
like blatant and on its face and it it uh it's good because it's linked to other Stephen King works, most mm. notably the Tart Tower. Right. Um the Turtle. But so I appreciate it for that reason, but I just feel like it was a little um a little clumsy, I guess, as sure. as a plot point. And I think I think it worked fine, and mm-hmm. I think it was interesting that the turtle had kind of just given up, right? And it was kind of like whatever, do it, do what you do. If you can <laughs> defeat him, fine. If not, whatever. I'll wait another twenty seven years. Right. It was just kind of a fuck it attitude from the mm-hmm. turtle. It was kind of funny, if I'm remembering it correctly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that was it, it. Was interesting in that regard, and I don't have an issue with it. I just feel right. like it could have been even better if it had remained a little more shrouded in mystery. Yeah. Yeah. I I can uh I can understand that. I was I was fine with how much we got of it. Mm-hmm. Um I thought it was a nice um counterpoint to to the uh the monster because we get the sense that there's something that's binding the kids together and and you know putting them into position and think something that's helping them out along the way a little bit here and there that but it, not very much it, right yeah yeah no shit <laughs> but there's there's somewhat of a balance to it so it's not like i mean because it because without the turtle and and i i know that you didn't say that you didn't want the turtle not included at all you just wanted it more shroud in a mystery mm-hmm. but i like the inclusion of the turtle because it gives a balance to it and showing that there's other forces at work rather than just this monster that's underneath the dairy and, and controlling and, and killing people. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a little vague, which was fine. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that was just what kind of contributed to my slight confusion during the climax. Cause I mean, I was expecting the turtle to pop up, but it was just like, okay, now we have two, two different uh, timelines characters that are, interfacing with this monster and this weird parallel world or this this interdimensional thing and then there's a fucking turtle (laughs) (laughs) and it's just like it's it's a little bit overload for me but um but overall i enjoyed the inclusion of it and i'll we'll talk more about the connections to the dark tower but i I liked that it had some tie to my favorite thing um and then the last thing i want to bring up tiny I don't know how well you remember this from reading it. I understand it wasn't in the miniseries. Mm-hmm. Um, sexuality yes. in it. So I'm glad you're bringing this up. Yeah. Because it's something I wanted to talk about, too. Okay, good. So Tiny loves talking about little kids having sex. No. Yeah. <clears throat> Jesus Christ. No. Uh-huh. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Um, no. So there are two notable scenes in, in, in the book. Um, the first one I want to touch on, and then, and then we'll go on to the Losers Club sequence. Um, it's Henry Bowers and Patrick um, – oh, man, I'm blanking on his last name. Patrick Hockstetter. Patrick Hockstetter. Okay, so Patrick yeah. Hockstetter. There's a scene with, with Henry Bowers and Patrick Hockstetter right before Patrick's death, essentially, where uh, where Beverly is is hiding – in a in a car in a in a junker car and watching uh henry bowers and, and patrick hockstetter they're like fighting uh, they're firing uh, or not firing but um they're lighting farts on fire um, <laughs> and then as like it's it's it leads up to it by saying that patrick was this really uh socially weird kid who had an obsession with killing animals and killing flies and he had a notebook where he had uh, dead flies that he had just mm-hmm. kind of cataloged and he would show it to kids without act- without saying a word. Yeah. And it was just very a very disturbed child. 
and then so after Victor Chris and, and all the other bullies leave and it's just Henry and Patrick um, gives Henry a little bit of a hand job. Right. And uh, it's kind of weird. It's it's like a, it's a weird moment that I I thought was interesting in that it was building up the Patrick character and how just how he was he was a sociopath and he was he was maladjusted and it was just really uh, it was a really kind of disturbing scene just because he's basically doing this to Henry without like, it's not like a romantic thing or anything. It's just like, Hey, let me jerk you off. Right. Um, and what I didn't really like about it is like right after that, he's dead. Like it, like it kills him. Cause he finds the, when he goes to his refrigerator, which was disturbing in its own right. I feel like Patrick is an underdeveloped character yeah. for me. Um, because you get this, this character that's kind of built up as being even more deranged as more deranged than Henry Bowers. And then he, it's so much that he has this fridge full of dead animals that he's killed. And then just like that, he's dead. Um, what did you think of that, that scene, the sexuality of that scene and, and Patrick, uh, Hockstetter in general? Um, I, 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 it's coming back to me a little bit now. Um, I, I sort of forgot about it cause it's not in the miniseries or anything. Right. Um, I, <sighs> It's it is extra disturbing, I think, because Patrick Hockstetter is also kind of a little bit slow. I think, yeah, he's very unintelligent. Like he probably mm. has a very low IQ, right? And so, for that reason, it's like it's kind of exploitative. I think, like mm-hmm. Henry is exploiting the fact that he's really dumb and doesn't really know what's happening. Yeah, well, it's not necessarily that. It's okay. that the way that it's depicted in the book is that Patrick asks him if he wants to do something and that it's fun or if okay. it, uh, Patrick's like, do you want me to do something to you? It's fun. And then he starts like feeling him up. Okay. And then after a while, like Henry's in this weird trance and then he's like, do you want me to put it in my mouth? Wow. And then, yeah. And then Henry's like, wait, what? And then he kind of snaps out of the trance and then he, he threatens to murder him because he's, he doesn't want people to think that he's gay and, and right. all this. It's, it's this kind of weird out of place scene, but I kind of, I kind of liked it in terms of, characterization of these kids that are already pretty disturbed. Um, and it's just kind of showing their, their, uh, I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. It's, yeah, I can't really describe it either. Cause I, I didn't remember it all that well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But it seems more like, I, I, I don't know. I, it's, it's kind of an anomaly in the, in, right. in the book, except for <laughs> the Losers <laughs> Club scene. Yeah. So after they, in 1958, after they've defeated it and, uh, they, you know, they come out of the sewer and everything, or the, I think they're in the, the lair of, of it. I thought it was before they defe- defeated it. No, I think it's, it's right after. It's after. Yeah, because the, the way that it's described is that it's right after they've defeated it and it's, they can feel that, that bond that's between them starting to fade already. Mm-hmm. And so basically what they do is each of the losers club has sex with Beverly. Right. And it's a gangbang like with in a row. kids. Yeah. Yeah. They were on a train on her. It's weird. Like it is like knowing. Okay. So my perspective on is I'd heard about this scene. I knew vaguely what, what it was. Or I knew that there was a there was a a gangbang a, a child gangbang in in it. So the entire time I'm reading the book, I'm thinking that they are under the spell of it, and that they that they that they basically rape Beverly as mm-hmm. a way to to mess with them. 
or that like when that scene with, with Patrick and Henry, I thought that they were going to find Bev and, and run a train on her. But the way that it's actually depicted is that, I mean, it's not that it's they're they're feeling the bond of their, of their friendship fade a little bit. And then they each take turns having sex with her as a way to kind of strengthen their bond and, and express their love physically, which I get what the point was. I, I mm-hmm. get it. It was just really kind of out there. It, it, I don't know how to describe. How did you feel about it when you read it? Yeah, it's it's super controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think besides all of the famous parts of the book, mm-hmm. this is kind of tucked in there as well because it's so controversial. Mm-hmm. I kind of wish it wasn't in the book, just for the fact that it detracts from it detracts other people. Like it didn't bother me that much, but I think it, mm-hmm. it bothers a lot of people a lot Yeah, to the point where they dismiss the book and mm-hmm. they don't like the book. They won't read it again. They won't recommend it to people. They won't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wish for that reason, I wish it wasn't even in the book because I think, mm-hmm. I think it detracts from how great it is. Um, but personally I just, I I'm sort of indifferent towards it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think there's also the, the kind of the thematic idea that, Beverly is sort of sort of like kind of repressed by her father. Yeah. Like sexually repressed by her father Mm -hmm. because he won't let he's he's so obsessed with the fact that she's, you know, getting to an age where she might start talking to boys and becoming a sexual person that he's completely trying to repress that. And the fact that she's kind of like riding the high of defeating uh, defeating it and, and, you know, she's, she's feeling confident and she's like, I'm a person now. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can't, I can't deny this part of myself anymore. So I'm going to full on take total control of my sexuality right now in this moment. So there's, there's kind of, I've heard other people make that point as well, that it's, mm-hmm. it's part of her as a, it's part of Beverly as a sexual person because yeah. she's the one who initiates all of it, right? Yeah. It's not like, hey, you guys want to bang? It's not right. Like, it's not like then, all the, it's not like all the guys were like, hey, I think we should have sex with Beverly now. And she's like, what? <laughs> right. Okay, I guess. Like right. she initiates it exactly. So I think a, a lot of people, I think, see it as a empowering moment for her, mm-hmm. um, which I I can totally see that. But it's also, I if if she had like just gone off into the woods with like bill because she had a crush Mm -hmm. on bill and had sex with bill i would completely accept that notion and be like that's what that was about Mm -hmm. but the fact that she she initiates sex with six boys Mm -hmm. all in a row like that's that's not just discovering your sexuality that's that's a whole other level. Yeah. Most people never do anything like that in their sexual lives. Right. So it's, it's just, it's such a, well, pro- you haven't lived. <laughs> I guess not. I guess sixth grade was bland for me. Um, no, like it's, it's such, the problem with it is that it's so extreme. Mm-hmm. If she, if she yeah. had just had sex with a boy, mm-hmm. that would be very normal. It'd be a little bit taboo because she's like 11 in right. the book, but not, not something so extreme that you don't really mm-hmm. ever hear about it. Like it's a gross thing, but 11 year olds have sex all the time. Um, so it's it, the fact that the, what the problem with it is that it's so extreme. I, yeah. I think if Stephen King had dialed it down a little bit and mm-hmm. like I said, just she'd gone off into the woods and had sex with Bill or something like that, mm-hmm. it would be an entirely different thing. Um, but I, I ultimately, like I said, ultimately I, 
I don't have a big problem with it. I'm I'm a big fan of bold storytelling choices, and mm-hmm. this was super super bold, right? But I th- I think it was so bold that it it overshot its purpose. Yeah, um, and and didn't it? It was too much. It, it was it was just a little bit too much. Yeah, and there there's so there, like I've I've read reactions from people who are just mm-hmm. so pissed off about it and yeah. just really you know it's it, they think it's a really misogynistic thing and it's it's terrible and it's super gross and yeah I, mean, and, I get that but yeah and it is kind of misogynistic I don't think it is the it, I don't think it's as black and white as that yeah I don't think so either yeah because. On one hand, it's not a lustful thing. It's not like she's all horned up from killing yeah. this giant spider thing that she's just like, oh, I want just any dick I can get. Right. But, but she's like, she feels this bond and this, this genuine love for these, for these boys. And I think that her relationship with her father is so, um, is so rocky and so, um, uh, disjointed and, and abusive that she's not, she's not, I don't think it's ever stated that she's sexually abu- assaulted by him or sexually abused, except for when he's kind of under the, uh, I think it's, I think it's, he's under the spell of it and he basically forces her to strip down so mm. that he can inspect her crotch to, to make sure that she's, you know, still a virgin essentially. Right. And I think that that scene plays a pivotal role in the the gangbang scene because at this point in the story when they've defeated it and and she has this this she's overcome with these emotions i think that she has such a skewed perspective on what her body is going through and what her body is going to go through and and what what it is to be a woman and everything that that kind of makes her have this um this uh and and also with with talking to talking to kids like like her peers like her her uh peers that are, are girls in her same same age bracket who have these different ideas about what sex is and everything i feel like the all of this kind of comes to to a head where she has all of these confused emotions that she's she just feels like she needs to embrace the love that she feels for these boys and the the most extreme way she can do that is through sharing her physical body with them mm. and she's it's it's a misguided thing but there is something of a sweetness to it in a very misguided and, and weird way that it's yeah. still it's still somewhat out of place but I, I get the intention right um and i didn't i didn't mind it per se it was just kind of out of left field and and uh, kind of out of left field but i i get the intention yeah i kind of I, I I understand all sides of the argument with it, mm-hmm. I guess, and I think everyone has a point uh, on on both sides of of the controversy, if you will. Mm-hmm. So I understand it, and again, like I I just didn't have a huge issue with it. It wasn't a big deal. Um, I but I just think I think Stephen King could have taken a different route with what he was trying to communicate. Mm-hmm. Um, and granted, I haven't heard his side of the story. I uh, one thing I didn't research is any explanation he's ever given for it. Right. I don't know that he has given a public explanation yeah, for it. I don't it. know if he has either. Um, but if he has, I'd be curious what he was really going for there. Um, but you know, all, all the different interpretations of that event. Um, I, I, I can, I can understand all of them and, mm-hmm. uh, it's controversy can be a good thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, it can, you know, draw attention to something, but I, 
like I said, ultimately, I just I kind of wish it wasn't in the book, or I wish it was not such such an extreme event. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think that anything like this would be like it would be? Because you said it's not in the miniseries. Do you think that if not this version that's coming out Friday? Do you think we'll, we would ever see it like making it ad- into an adaptation? I don't anything like it. I don't. I really don't think so. It's it's too controversial for it mm-hmm. to be visually represented. Right. I, that's how I'll put it. I think it's just it's it's too controversial and it's too ambiguous. Mm-hmm. I think if it served a more definitive purpose, mm-hmm. it could be possible to see it, see it or something like it. In in a movie, but uh, or a series, if it ever gets remade for another time, right? Uh, I think it's possible, but I I just really don't see it happening. I know that the the movie coming out is rated R, which is right such a great thing, yeah, because <laughs> that's definitely something that the miniseries was missing. It's mm-hmm. it, it it needs to be rated R. Nice. Um. So that's that's encouraging, but I don't think it's going to be that hard of an R rating, right? That they'll that they'll depict this. I think yeah. maybe she'll. I could see her like making out with the boys or something like that or Well, also kind of the thing that kind of makes it more of an anomaly in the story also is that they do the whole blood pact thing right. where they swear to to come back if the if it ever comes back. It's like why not make that the big moment where they they sure up their bond by, you know, right. having a blood pact there. So it's just it's kind of it's kind of weird that they have two scenes where not necessarily serving the same purpose, but that can one of them can serve both purposes. Right. Um, so it's just it's it's an interesting controversy. But yeah. if you have thoughts on on the the gangbang scene in it, feel free to email us. Mm-hmm. We definitely want to hear your thoughts on kids fucking each other in the sewer. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh my god, that's that's terrible. That is terrible. Um. So yeah, so th- I think that'll do it for our spoiler review. I think it will, yeah. yeah. And to kind of wind down, we're going to talk a little bit about the connections to the Dark Tower and in Stephen King's greater works. Just to play on the safe side, yes, we will spoil the Dark Tower. So mm-hmm. if you haven't read through the Dark Tower series, um, be warned that we may go into spoilers for the Dark Tower. See the turtle, Amy Keen. All things serve the fucking bean. Okay, so to kind of wind down on this episode, we are going to talk about the Dark Tower connections to uh, it and uh, also the greater Stephen King uh, works that we could pick up on. The first thing I want to bring up, Tiny, and this will be brief since it's not directly related to the Dark Tower or anything, but... uh, Christine makes a cameo. Yes. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. I um I haven't read Christine. I've seen the movie, but I haven't read it. I think that that might be my next one after The Dead Zone. But it was a pleasant surprise because I, I know I know about Christine, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um and just when Henry Bowers is uh going after the Losers Club in 85 and then just this Plymouth Fury comes up and it's like, oh, holy shit, that's Christine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty, pretty. Uh, it was a nice little cameo and in interconnectedness. How did you feel about that? I I liked it. I'm always fun of. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm always a fan of little cameos like that, little mm-hmm. Easter eggs. So yeah, it was great. Nice. Um, so then let's see. The next kind of connection that I want to bring up here is the idea of cycles. Um, mm-hmm. 
how this happens every 27 years and it's kind of repetitive and everything that kind of plays into some of the, the idea of Ka being a wheel in, in the dark tower. Um, I don't know if that was a conscious effort by King or if that was just, I don't know if, I don't know if I'm reading into it, but I, that's one thing that I kind of noticed. Me too. Um, one of the questions I had for you though, tiny, and I don't know if this is ever explicitly stated or if this is something that, um, is just something I'm trying to force a connection in. Do you think that it is a Todash monster or if it's something else entirely? Um, I hadn't thought about it. Oh, I hadn't, I hadn't made that connection, but it totally could be. Mm-hmm. It totally could be. Um, I think at one point it's kind of implied that it uses a, a thinny. Mm-hmm. At one point, so that's kind of interesting, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a Todash monster, right? Um, but I, I really don't know. I hadn't thought about that. It definitely could be, and I think it's, it's kind of a good thing that it's a little uh, ambiguous, or it's not, right. it's not blatantly spelled out that it is. Sure. Um, I don't know, but I, if if it is, that makes that makes Todash extra terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh yeah. What if what if Stephen King only wrote this book as a descriptor of what a Todash monster is like? Oh my god! Like he's that dedicated. That would be that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, like that would be that's kind of my headcanon now yeah. <laughs> because that makes I mean that makes Todash in in the Dark Tower series even more terrifying. I and know brings about a, a big like that puts a lot more fear into the story of the Dark Tower. Right. Um, but yeah, and uh, I'm kind of back and forth about it because I want it to be a Todash monster because I wanted to have that clean of a, of a link to the dark tower. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the idea of it being ageless and, and being this eternal thing and, and having kind of the counterpart on the good side being, um, being the turtle, I kind of feel like that that doesn't really fit well within like the Todash monster idea. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's kind of why I wanted to get your feel on it. Yeah. Um, and then the other connection, the big connection really is the turtle. Yeah. So are we to assume that this is a matcher and the the turtle? I think so. I mean, what else would it be? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I forget what the saying is, but, Turtle of enormous girth, yeah. something the earth. See the know. see the turtle of enormous girth on his shell. He holds the earth, right? And then there's more to it, but I can't remember. Yeah. And there's also the uh, the timeless. Um, uh, see the turtle, ain't he keen? All things serve the fucking beam. <laughs> um, nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I there's no way it's not Maturin the turtle. <laughs> I mean, it, it right. just has to be. Yeah, but it's funny that it's um, it kind of makes me wonder where in the timeline of um, Roland DeShane this specific story takes place because mm-hmm. the turtle is like defeated and kind of given up, yeah, and, uh, dejected. I wonder if mm-hmm. it's like you know, if it's towards the end where. Uh, spoiler alert for Dark Tower, they defeat the Breakers and like right. they're getting ready to break the beam of the turtle mm-hmm. and it's just like the turtle's just like, I can't right now, I can't help you with this right. monster and in, in this one part of Maine, I'm about to die. Right. You know, I, I, I wonder if that's mm-hmm. 
that's what happens. That's what the case is, which again, that's, that'd be really cool. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And also the question is, I mean, I guess the, this answers that question, but, um, is dairy on Keystone earth or is it in a different mm. level of the tower, which right. I'm thinking that I'm my read on the dark tower is that Keystone earth is our, like us right now where Stephen King is writing stories and everything. Yeah. Whereas every other, every story is a different level of the tower. So, um, it would make sense that it would be timeline wise that this could be closer to when the breakers are breaking the, breaking the final beams. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is, it is implied that not only is is the turtle hurt, but the turtle may be dead, mm-hmm. and it's just it's kind of up in the air. Um, yeah, yeah. Like in another another loop, they mm. don't succeed, and the turtle. No, that wouldn't make sense. No, but um, I, I is um is Derry mentioned in any other books that are part of the Dark Tower? Um, I know it's I know it comes up in eleven twenty two sixty three right. Which reading it really makes me want to go back and read eleven twenty two sixty three. Yeah, um, that might actually be my next one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, like, is Derry mentioned in Salem's Lot at all? Uh I don't know. I want to say that it's mentioned in uh, Insomnia, from what I've heard. Okay. Um. But yeah. So maybe it is on Keystone Earth because the Crimson King makes an appearance in Insomnia. Right. And I, I, I want to say maybe Insomnia actually maybe takes place in Derry. Does it? Um, I read about a half of Insomnia and couldn't. Oh, really? Couldn't get into it all the way. Interesting. I was younger. Yeah, that's kind of how I was with Doomakey. Really? Did you ever finish Doomakey? I finished Doomakey, okay. yeah. It was okay. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, it, Insomnia, Bag of Bones, Dreamcatcher, Fair, Fair Extension. Eleven twenty two sixty three and the body all featured dairy. Okay, because if you know if there's a, a, a another book that we know takes place on Keystone Earth and they mention dairy, oh yeah, well, there you go. Then that dairy is on Keystone Earth, but, right? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I don't huh. know. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, kind of, how do you feel about the inclusion of of the turtle and and does this? Well, it'll it'll go into my final question or my final point about the connections to the Dark Tower and everything is uh, – and this is something that I kind of want to do every time we have a book that uh, deals with the Dark Tower either indirectly or directly. But does reading it, does the plot of it, the events of it, does that influence or otherwise change your perspective or reading of the Dark Tower saga as a whole in any way? Hmm. Well, the the idea that you just planted in my mind that it could be a Todash monster does kind of influence nice. it a little bit. Um, nice. Just add adds another level of terror mm-hmm. to the Dark Tower series. Um, but you mean that it it would make it not be just this really kind of indistinct monster in the woods? <laughs> um. Yeah. Um. I, it doesn't necessarily affect my uh, my interpretation or my enjoyment of the dark tower mm-hmm. it's uh it's it's the the turtle doesn't really it's not enough it's not enough of a theme or it's not enough of a plot point or anything in the dark tower that it's that it doesn't make sense that it could be part of it sure i mean it's it's just the turtle the turtle is so otherworldly and like mm. uh you know it it can 
it's not a logistical or a, a physical issue for it to be part of both stories. So right. it doesn't really affect, infect my interpretation or my enjoyment of the dark tower. And I don't, okay. I don't mind that it's included in it. Mm. Like I said, I think, it, I think it was a little, uh, just a little bit clumsy sure. uh, and it, it kind of took some of the mystery out of the story, but, uh, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I, I'm not, I don't have a big issue with it or anything. And, okay. and I'm, I, I, I think it was a cool, uh, still a cool part of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like that it's, I like the fact that such, such a well-renowned story like it is linked to the Dark Tower. Yeah. You know, like there's some other stories that are very good in the Stephen King universe that are not linked to the Dark Tower, at least not yet. Right. Um, and so I'm glad that something as incredible as this story is mm-hmm. linked to the Dark Tower in some way. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you there. Um, let's see. And then also, yeah, I mean, that's about it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's yeah. it. I, uh, and I, and I agree. I, I like that it's included or I like that it's a part of the story and I like the inclusion of the turtle. Um, and I really like in terms of, of affecting the way that I read the dark tower, the way that I interpret the dark tower now after having read it for the first time, I think that I, I like the idea of, of the turtle being, being the guardian of the, of the beam of the, Turtle being being mat- matcher and the tur- the turtle, mm-hmm. and I like the idea of the timeline of the events of Derry Main and in uh, the events of it in 1985. I like the idea of those li- of that lining up with the timeline of the Dark Tower series where they're at Algol Siento and about to and then and they're rescuing the beams essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that placement of it, and I, I like the idea of of. Roland and the Cotet's actions influencing to some extent whether or not, or I guess really the breakers actions influencing, um, the turtles presence in it. Um, I like, I like thinking of those as parallel stories that are happening on different levels of the tower. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think in that case, I I would, I would think that, uh, reading, reading it, uh, Sometime between books five and seven of the Dark Tower would be good as a as a um, good background, I, I guess, to the to the story, or give more dimension to the story if you want to have something that ties into the Dark Tower. Right. Um, yeah, and then uh, I guess that about does it for this episode of Tower Junkies. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you like your new business cards. I do. Yep. Um, Gonna, are you going to give them out to people and stuff? Totally. Okay. Everywhere. Are they going to be wedding favors? Yeah. Cool. Cool. No. Don't worry. I'll I'll hand them out to everyone at your wedding. <laughs> um, it's all right. <laughs> no. Anyway, uh, for those listeners, Tiny's getting married next month. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, yeah. I don't really have an outro here. Uh, once again, check out shocktoberandirvington.com if you're in Indianapolis and come to our event. Uh, benefiting the Irvington Historical Society. If you're a Stephen King fan, if you're in Indianapolis, if you're a horror fan, check it out because it's for short horror films from local filmmakers here in Indianapolis. It's going to be a blast. It's October 6th, 2017 at the Irving Theater. More information at shocktoberinirvington.com. And then also check out our other podcasts at obsessiveviewer.com slash podcasts. We have the Obsessive Viewer, which is a weekly movie and TV podcast where we cover a specific topic, be a genre, trope, movie, or show each episode. You find that at obsessiveviewer.com. 
And then I also have a solo side project podcast called Anthology, where I'm watching The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and par- pairing up each episode with a bonus review of a science fiction or or otherwise science fiction or anthology or anything related to the week's episode. Um, you can find that at anthologypod.com. I also have bonus reviews in that podcast for Black Mirror, um, Dimension 404, and soon-to-be... Uh, uh, Philip K. Dick's uh, Electric Dreams, uh, just basically contemporary science fiction anthology uh, t- television shows. Check that out at anthologypod.com. And uh, anything else, Tony? I don't think so. All right. Well, I think that'll about do it for this week's episode or this episode of Tower Junkies. Uh, we will have an episode about the miniseries and the new movie coming out. And then also here in a couple weeks, we will have a review of Gerald's Game, which I didn't tell you, Tony. I actually recorded a review uh, by myself of Gerald's Game, the book. Nice. I just um, bought the audiobook. Did you really? Yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. So I'm going to try to listen to that over the next week or so. Sweet. And then we have the movie coming out on September 29th, and uh, mm-hmm. we'll likely do a review of that. Yep. And uh, yeah, so having said all that I think that'll about do it for this uh, episode of Tower Junkies long days and pleasant nights and may you have twice the number we did it we did it yeah thank you for listening to Tower Junkies a Dark Tower podcast presented by ObsessiveViewer.com you can find more of our episodes at TowerJunkiesPod.com and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes Google Play Stitcher or anywhere else podcasts are found If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can find ways to do that at towerjunkiespod.com slash donate or become a patron for Obsessive Viewer at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer for recurring donations with different reward tiers. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Any and all feedback on the podcast is encouraged. You can contact us by emailing us at matt at obsessiveviewer.com or by tweeting us at Tower Junkies Pod or at Obsessive Viewer and at Obsessive Tiny. You can also like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Tower Junkies Pod. For more podcast content from ObsessiveViewer.com, check out Anthology, my solo side project podcast where I'm reviewing The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and exploring other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology television shows. You can find Anthology at AnthologyPod.com and anywhere podcasts are found. Finally, if you're philosophically curious, check out Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda. You can find that at TheSecularPerspective.com and subscribe to the podcast on the app of your choice. Once again, thank you for listening to Tower Junkies, and we'll see you next time.